I mean, when it first started, I mean, it was just, it seemed like it rained, just, you know, constantly raining, dark and rainy. So I was driving home from work and um, talking to my father, told him that it was raining cats and dogs. Got home, we checked the levels of the creek and everything was rising, but whenever we started getting ready for bed. Around 12 o'clock, I got a call from my son, David. And he said, Dad, um, we're starting to get water in the basement. You know, I, I was concerned, but I figured with the electricity still on, the sump pump working, it wasn't going to be a problem. Well, around 2.30, 3 o'clock, he calls me back and says, Dad, the power just went off. I said, oh, crap. I started to hear this gurgle. And then all of a sudden, in the bathtub, water. Well, it was more than just water, but it looked like water at first. Started to come up in the bathtub. Then more started to come up, more started to come up. Then it started to come up out of our sink. So then I started to pan. The water was coming up through the drain on our patio in the basement level condo. So we were giving up every hour throughout the night and throughout the day to um, shop back the, the water and prevent it from getting into our condo and ruining the flooring. And I remember when we would get up and you'd walk out the door and you just hear complete silence. And the condo was on 28th Street, so not a street that's ever silent. When I got my first phone call, it started off minor. Patio outside the drain was clogged, and uh, this was on the garden level, and the uh, water ran up on uh, the outside of the sliding glass door about mm, three feet high. So the water was actually blocked just by this t small, small door. You know, it looked like it was like a fish tank. And then other parts of the building started. It was kind of like a domino effect. It just got from small to, to, to worse. So it, first it was a room, then it was a hallway, then it was one apartment, then it was another apartment, and uh, assisted living. And then we found ourselves uh, evacuating assisted living because the ceilings were just, every one of them was starting to kind of cave in slowly. I can remember looking down on the river as it was happening because a few days after, well, after the rain lightened up a little, my friend Meryl lives on the cliff right above my house and she allowed me to go up there and watch. And so we watched the river rise and watched our place go under and we watched cars float. And we could see the, my bug, it went under my VW plastic bug, went under and I thought they were, that was the first thing that was gonna float because of the old commercials. I'm Leah Kelleher. And I'm Kate Stanek. And you're listening to Let's Talk Boulder, a City of Boulder podcast exploring our community one conversation at a time. Twenty twenty three marks ten years since our community experienced a historic flood. 
So this episode, we're going back in time, back to September 2013, a month marked by constant and heavy rainfall in our region. More than 18 inches of rain fell along the Front Range. That's a year's worth of rain in only eight days. And as you'd imagine, or as you might know, this caused widespread flooding that destroyed homes, trails, roads, businesses, all sorts of infrastructure. Communities across Boulder County, from Lyons to Superior, were impacted. We call this event the 2013 Flood. The voices you heard at the top of this episode are from interviews collected by the Carnegie Library Oral History Program. They're folks from Boulder, Jamestown, Lyons, and Longmont, reflecting on their experiences of the flood shortly after it happened. Ten years later, we are also reflecting on the flood, remembering stories of community resilience and looking at how far we've come, which is quite a bit. As with our first couple episodes, we wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the many, many emotions that may come up for folks as they listen to this episode. The 2013 flood was a traumatic event, and it shook our community and other communities nearby. So please do what you need to to take care of yourself as you listen. Now, before diving into flood preparedness and mitigation, we want to set the scene for what happened. We know not everyone was in Boulder in 2013, so we want to give you an inside look at the flood through personal stories and from experts who were on the ground during the disaster and our recovery from it. Yes, and we're telling this story to honor all the ways neighbors stepped up to help each other. Together, we've remained strong. We've learned a lot, and we've taken those lessons to prepare for future emergencies, whether it's floods, wildfires, or whatever else the climate crisis throws at us. So, let's start from the beginning. We hear references to the 2013 flood, and we've made some already, but what actually happened that September? The days leading up to it, it was really hot. And August was hot, and it was that sort of brutal heat. And prior to the flood, we ended up getting rain. So there was a week of storms there that were occurring. This is Mike Chard. He leads the Office of Disaster Management, or ODM for short. The ODM oversees disaster services in the city of Boulder and Boulder County. They played a key role during and after the flood by coordinating disaster response and recovery, sending out alerts to the community, and much, much more. And the storms saturated the ground, kind of set up the conditions for what we started experiencing during the flood. At this point, it's September 11th. It was a Wednesday. The afternoon, we started picking up some uh, uh, rain and, and seeing some things develop. So had staff come back here to the EOC and set things up and get into our weather monitoring profile and get hold of the weather service and find out what it looked like. And at that point, they were like, well, it could be bad. Uh, We're still watching it. Things are setting up, just matters where it goes. And around 5 o'clock that night, we knew things were starting to look weird. A bunch of us from Open Space and Mount Parks, we were driving back from a conference in Crested Butte. You know, the rain was just pretty steady. And we were all like, wow, this is okay. Like, this is a good storm. And once we got into Golden, 
some of the vehicles we were in, we were a lot of us were following each other. We could see each other hydroplaning a little bit in front of us, going through these huge puddles. This is Janelle Freeston. She oversees our Open Space and Mountain Parks volunteer services team who connect with park visitors, letting people know where to go and why the place they're hiking is so special. Okay, back to Janelle's story. And the clouds were so dark that afternoon, that first afternoon. And like in our gut, we were just like, hmm, like what's, what is going on? I wonder if this is going to turn into something. It, it sure did. I actually was out of town and I was waiting to come home. I was flying home that day and had been getting alerts about the rain that was coming. Flash flood watches. This is Chris Mezchuk. He's our deputy city manager. At the time of the flood, he worked in our planning department on historic preservation. And then I got on the airplane and when we landed in Denver, I turned my phone on and it didn't stop buzzing for like five minutes straight. At that point, we weren't really sure this was going to be the four-and-a-half-day event flood that it turned out to be, but uh, it was definitely starting to rain hard. And then I uh, had a staff member that needed to um, get home and was like, I'm going to take you home. we got to go now because i got to get back. We didn't get home. Uh, we got up to, I think it was about 75th and Valmont, and then a uh, flash flood warning went out, so we had to turn around, but we were seeing surface runoff all over the place and turned around really fast, came back here, joined up the rest of the staff. And then that's when it all started. And then from there, we didn't leave here for the next two weeks. We were pretty much in the EOC 24-7 dealing with the response and then the aftermath until we could get into a more formal recovery structure. The EOC, or the Emergency Operations Center, is the place where staff from across the county gather during an emergency to send out communications. Think about the emergency alerts you get on social media when an emergency is unfolding. They also coordinate disaster response to help communities who are facing emergencies respond and recover as quickly as possible. And that looks like coordinating between governments, nonprofits, and volunteer agencies. And things started happening in our 911 center and uh, the 911 systems from here to Longmont were getting calls for service, people getting stranded, basements flooding, reports of cars floating. And it uh, was just sort of the unleashing of the skies for the next four and a half days. And, and we continued to just kind of react. When Mike says react, he's talking about sending out emergency notifications and fielding calls from the community started pushing out alerts and activating sirens and doing the things that we do to try to alert the community. And still at this time, had no idea this was going to be a four and a half day rain event. The thought was, it's going to be a bad night, flash flood, wake up in the morning, we'll see all the damage, we'll start getting into recovery, but just kept coming wave after wave. After pacing around in my backyard and in the house for a day, they needed people to help in the call center at the EOC. This is Chris again. And so I signed up for some shifts, then spent 12 hours taking phone calls. It's it's in the basement of the emergency operations centers, and it's just, you know, a big long conference table with a bunch of people sitting around it with telephones. And you didn't hang the phone up, you just pushed the button, you know, the to hang up the phone and the next call came through and you let go and the next call came to you. It was nonstop. And what was really intense about it was most of the phone calls we were getting were missing persons reports. 
while at the same time you're getting updates about what people are seeing in the field and a bunch of the missing persons phone calls that we were getting that night because I did an overnight shift. Um, we're outside of Longmont, up Longmont Dam Road. And at the same time, we were getting reports that the dam may have overtopped or collapsed. So you were taking these reports from people that didn't know where their loved ones were. And at the same time, we didn't know if the dam had even survived. Um, turns out it did, so everything was okay. But that was really intense. The other wild experience was answering the phone and the people calling are people you know. So uh, a woman I know that that lived up in the mountains and she was out of town and trying to figure out how to get home. And there were, at that point, there were no roads going east-west in Boulder County in the mountains that were still passable. Everywhere you're driving and turning your head, you're seeing water rolling over uh, roadways and you're seeing the, the drainage gullies next to the roads, just not full of water, but raging water. And to have literally, as we found out through the four and a half days, the entire county from north to south, east to west, totally banked in with overcast clouds that were just bringing up bands of moisture and wringing it out along the foothills and flooding Erie and to Longmont to, you know, Gold Hill and uh, City of Boulder, just everywhere was flooding and then the other 10 counties around us. That first night when we got that first really hard rain and I got woken up at about one in the morning and uh, the storm sewer manhole lid had blown off and was bouncing across the street. So it woke me up and that was kind of the moment I had a realization that this was going to be a big event. This is Brandon Coleman. Brandon is an engineer that focuses on flood mitigation with the city. He was living in Boulder during the flood. Okay, we've talked about a lot already, but I'd love to take a step back. Why did this happen? Why was the flooding so intense? Well, to understand why the flooding happened, we need to understand our water system. Here's Joe Tadeucci. Joe leads the city's public utilities department, everything from water distribution to wastewater collection and treatment and infrastructure planning. At the time of the 2013 flood, he managed the city's water system, so he knows the ins and outs of how water flows in Boulder. Boulder Creek is the biggest drainage. It's a stream that comes down from the mountains and it has to do with topography. The, the water follows the elevation and flows downhill and, and the valleys and so the low parts of town. You can think about a drainage as water that flows from the mountains to lower elevations and then collects there in the form of rivers and creeks, like our Boulder Creek. And we have 16 basically creeks that run through the city. And because of our proximity to the mountains and the foothills, it's, it's well known that Boulder is seen as the number one flood risk in the state of Colorado. That's why we stress emergency preparedness and uh, make sure that you know your plan. All the water flowing down from the mountain collects here in Boulder since we're at the base of them. Most of the time, this isn't a problem because the water is able to continue moving down our creeks off to other places like Louisville and Erie. It can be hard to tell if something is a drainage because they don't always have water in them. People may see something that looks like a grass line ditch or something, and that may be a major drainage way in the city. Sometimes we see larger amounts of water come down from the mountains when all the winter snow that's been collecting up there in our reservoirs melts. That extra water often gets discharged, meaning it spills over and makes its way down into our creeks. 
unless we've received a large amount of rain, we aren't too worried about this extra water. Our system and soil can handle it. And then as it gets warmer in the summer, we start actually using that storage in the reservoirs and the, and the levels drop. Well, in the September 13th flood, there was so much rain that Barker Reservoir filled back up and spilled over the spillway like it does during spring runoff. The runoff that happened was so intense from the rainstorm that it just washed a bunch of mud and sediment into that canal. It comes from Lyons and goes to Boulder Reservoir, kind of winds through the agricultural fields there. All of that mud and sediment caused flooding as water, stuck with nowhere to go, started overflowing out of the canal and into the surrounding area. And a similar overflow happened at South Boulder Creek, which is another drainage. The water that forms that drainage flows from the Gross Reservoir up in the mountains down to South Boulder Creek. South Boulder Creek comes in from the south of town, and it comes down through a a steep valley, and then it hits a big, broad, wide floodplain. For those who are unfamiliar with water lingo, a floodplain is an area of low-lying ground next to a river. Because of this, they're more prone to flooding. The areas around South Boulder Creek and Wonderland Creek are also floodplains. And what happened in 2013 is US-36 effectively acted like a dam. Water started to spill over the banks of South Boulder Creek, and it filled up the wide floodplain to the west. And then in the middle of the night, it kind of reached the capacity of what the the wall formed by US-36 could hold back and it overtopped 36. And so some of the streets across to the north, like Koala Drive, became raging rivers. Wonderland Creek also got hit really hard in the flood. Downtown Boulder was also severely flooded. Here's Janelle again. Just seeing the footage on the news, seeing footage of Boulder Police, I remember at the corner of Arapahoe and Foothills, you know, how deep the water is, knowing that there were newscasters in Boulder reporting on it, showing that water funneling down the bike paths and the greenways. You see those events on CNN, and it's always a close-up of the disaster. And so being here, seeing the Boulder Creek area, and just the massive flooding, like the, the water level under the Broadway Bridge was like a foot below the bottom of the bridge. And then you could drive around to other parts of town and it was like nothing happened. Our minds were ready. Like Boulder knew. Boulder knew we were a, a city that's high risk of flood because of all the major creeks that funnel into a common area. But I think what we weren't prepared for is how all the little tributaries and streams that we didn't know were still there that were just covered up with the landscape came back to life. You know, there was, the water was just looking for so many places to go. So I think really, yeah, it hit me when I was sitting at home watching that footage and like, wow, the water is just coming from all places and it's not stopping. It's hard to put words to how intense this flood was, but it was so intense that we call it a hundred-year flood. Now, this is kind of a confusing concept. At least it was for me before I knew what it actually meant. I'd always assumed that a hundred-year flood happened every 100 years, but that's not quite right. 
A hundred year flood is a very kind of misleading term, but it's really statistically, it's a 1% chance of happening in any year. And then a 500 year flood is a 0.2% chance of happening in any given year. So there was a 1% chance of the 2013 flood happening that year. And it was a 1 in 1,000 or a 0.001% chance of getting the amount of rain that we got that year. Not only was there such a low chance of this happening in 2013, circumstances had to be kind of perfect for this to happen between the burn scar that that allowed this flooding, that allowed a flash flood, uh, and the weather systems had to be perfect. It just all kind of came together in a perfect package to create a one in 1,000 chance flood. All stats aside, the question that keeps coming up for me is how prepared, how ready were we for the 2013 flood? You know, we were actually pretty well prepared, and there was quite a bit of flood mitigation infrastructure already in place before the flood. And we'll talk about flood mitigation more in our next episode. But much of this infrastructure worked and prevented much more catastrophic flood damage. We were also more organized because of previous emergencies like the Four Mile Canyon fire in 2010, which burned over 6,000 acres of land about five miles west of downtown Boulder. The flood risk created by the burn scar left by that fire motivated us to get ready for a potential flood. And that burn scar created a tremendous flood risk to not just the uh, residents in Four Mile Canyon, but people remember there was some flooding that occurred that came out on a two-mile canyon creek, which comes out on Lee Hill. When you get these burn scars that are on slo- steep slopes, it changes the whole risk profile of a community. But we had to adjust then. We had to build a whole new alert warning system for the community around that. We had to be able to alert people faster. We had to work with our first response agencies, the fire departments, City of Boulder Police and Fire, the Sheriff's Department. We held a lot of meetings on creating flood plans around that. So there was already a lot of integration within that county and city uh, response community. So when we got to the 2013 flood, there was already some DNA in us that we were able to look at storms differently and weather. Those relationships were critical to the initial response to the flood and recovery the following days, months, and and really years. We're still recovering. This kept coming up as we talked to people. Relationships made rescue and recovery possible. And those relationships went beyond government staff, beyond agencies and, and local organizations working together. They included your neighbors. Here's Joe again. The Fraser Meadows retirement home was in a really bad situation and staff there and emergency responders were having to carry people out in the, in the middle of the night. Here's Travis Weed. Travis worked at the Fraser Meadows retirement community during the flood. We evacuated, uh, I think it was over 50 residents and I think like 20 minutes, something like that. So it was pretty, pretty incredible. Some residents that were in healthcare were in their beds and we weren't able to get them in wheelchairs, so we would roll the whole beds through to the healthcare lobby and then got them in a chair from there. Then we had to go outside. The outside was the worst part because it was pitch black. There was no power. The power went out. So we uh, transported these people through 
water two and three feet high and pitch, pitch black. Meanwhile, first responders were getting ready to take to the skies and start rescuing people who couldn't be reached by road because of all the flooding. We were calling for helicopters because we knew we lost roads. Boulder Airport became the head of base for our air rescue operations. It continued to rain all through Friday the 13th. And then Saturday, the sky started to clear, and then this wind leashed the helicopters and it looked like just a you know hornet's nest in the skies with helicopter sorties going up and down canyons doing rescues. And then we were getting search crews in. While all those rescues were happening, we also had shelters set up, so as people were getting rescued, we're moving to shelters and animal shelters. It's city of Boulder and Boulder County employees that staff the call center in times of disaster. After I finished that 12-hour shift, I came upstairs out of the EOC, and on the TV screens was a live video feed of the Boulder Municipal Airport, the Army National Guard helicopters, and I was standing in the back of the room, and the deputy police chief standing there, and he leans over and he goes, have, have you seen that? And I said, yeah, Dave, I see it on the screen. He's like, no, have you seen it? I'm like, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. And he said, no, have you seen it? I'm like, what do you mean? He said, have you been there in person? And I said, no. And he pulled out his cell phone and he called a phone number and he said, I have a city official that needs to be escorted to the airport. And I'm like, no, Dave, like, I don't need to be a tourist right now. Like, it's okay. And he said, no, you have to go see it. And about 10 minutes later, an officer arrived, probably thinking that he was going to escort some hot shot, you know, politician or something. And here's me with like my backpack, hadn't slept all night. And he took me out there and you watched helicopters land that were picking up people who were stranded that lived in the mountains and coming off the back of a helicopter with all their personal belongings that they could carry, their dogs, their cats, their kids, through this kind of tunnel of wildland firefighters that were assisting in that operation, funneling them into an airplane hangar where they were being kind of triaged and intake was being done, and then loading them onto a school bus and driving them to a shelter. And it was one of the most impactful experiences I've ever had. And it was in that moment that I realized how bad the flood really was. We learned later that it was the largest aerial evacuation since Hurricane Katrina at the time. People were getting rescued, removing to shelters and animal shelters and all the things that you do. We call it consequence management and a disaster to help support the community as they're, you know, lost their homes or need those sort of safety net services. City of Boulder was close to losing the main feeder line into the sewer plant. Uh, so we had to deal with that during those four days and people were dealing with sewer backup problems in their homes. All of the sewage in the city goes through a collection system starting at people's houses. It, it goes through a series of larger pipes and eventually gets to a main sewer pipe that brings the material to the wastewater plant. And Boulder Creek eroded the, the ground around that main sewer pipe and exposed it. And we had this massive raging river and just an exposed pipe. We were able to get the river under control and, and do... Uh, a really intense emergency repair. There were sewer backups all over the place. People, I think, are used to seeing the big cast iron manholes in the street, and those are entry points for runoff and, and rainwater. 
and we have old clay pipes in the system. And so when the ground gets saturated, the water can get in that way. Or in some cases, those manhole covers were blown off by large rocks rolling down the foothills. When those covers flew off, water started to funnel into the hole, causing more sewer problems. But our sewer system was only one of many impacts. The amount of sediment that had come in the floodwaters, I mean, the the park here in Central Park, it was just caked in mud. The, the library parking lot was, three quarters of it was covered in mud and silt. And the, the underpass under the Broadway Bridge was filled three quarters of the way with sediment. And then there were so many people whose houses flooded, either from floodwaters or from either groundwater coming up through their basement or wastewater coming in back into their house, that people started emptying their houses and their basements out into their driveways. And then there's woody debris and gravel that's it's a sediment collection around bridges, and then bridges are blown out, and all this debris is laying around, and then you get all these homes flooded, and thousands and thousands of homes across the whole county, and they're cutting up their carpet and their drywall, bringing it out to the curbside. The house tipped over upside down in the middle of a creek. So you got household hazardous waste. How do you get a house out of the middle of a creek? Didn't have a good debris plan, and we had to make it as we went. Dealing with all this damage and debris called for a damage assessment. In other words, we had to know what we were dealing with before we could clean up and rebuild our community and start to recover. But at the time, the only way to make those assessments was to get folks out on the ground, in the field, and looking at the damage. Because of the four mile fire, we put some effort into building a damage assessment team. There's so much that needed to be assessed. And they went out in, I think it was a series of three to four days, they had all the damage assessment completed. Because the, the flood impacts were so widespread across the community, we, we really didn't know how bad it was. We were still doing damage assessment on, on city infrastructure, trying to just kind of stabilize even our infrastructure, getting roads open, assessing bridges to make sure they were safe, restoring power to the water treatment plant. We ran water treatment Four days on generator power, nearly lost water service to the whole city. And if you lose water, you don't have a city anymore. The main sewer pipe to the whole city was floating in Boulder Creek with 50 million gallons a day running through it. Luckily, it didn't break. So it was like hanging on at the beginning. And then it was a lot of conversation of, okay, we have to start to put organization to the chaos that is happening around us. So... When the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, showed up, some of Mike's crew took them out to see the damage. Took them up to the canyons and took them to the edge of the road, and they're looking at this cliff and looking at nothing there as far as the eye can see around the bend. And they're like, oh, my God, how does this – this is crazy flooding. And, you know, there was residences that unfortunately were – you know, they're no longer at the same altitude or longitude, latitude, completely were wiped out just completely no longer there to show. I think it took FEMA back a bit that, wow, this is some pretty incredible damage. And it ended up doing $257 million in infrastructure damage to roads and power grid and storm sewer and sanitation systems. Roads, buildings, and critical infrastructure like sewer pipes weren't the only things being assessed. There was also a need to assess our trails, bridges on those trails, and all the roads leading to them. 
Here's Janelle again, along with Chad Brotherton. They both work for our Open Space and Mountain Parks Department, or OSMP for short, and they played big roles in recovering our trails. Chad is the Visitor Infrastructure Senior Manager. And what does that mean? It means I oversee and are responsible for the trails, trailheads, and signs programs for Open Space and Mountain Parks. Some of the hardest hit parts of Boulder were our trails. 40 miles of trails were significantly or severely damaged from the flood. And some of those, just to, to kind of visualize a little bit more, some of those had a three to six foot deep rut. So you could literally stand in it and it was deeper than a person. Over 100 miles of trails had at least minor damage. And that's out of 145 miles of trails at the time. So the, the system was just blown away by, by the impacts of this. The McClintock Trail behind the auditorium in the Chautauqua area, so near and dear to so many visitors' hearts and, and residents of that area. And that evening, what we hear is that for folks that live in the cottages behind the creek there, it sounded like trains running through, but there were rocks the size of cars, small cars tumbling down that drainage. And again, this was a creek that was probably, gosh, only two feet wide that became truly a raging river. And there's a stone bridge right at the base of that part of that, that trail. And a lot of the boulders backed up against that bridge, totally, dis totally destroyed that bridge. Staff and residents shortly after the flood, they were calling it the Hero Bridge. Because what our thought is, is if that bridge wasn't there to stop those rolling boulders, they would have continued to roll down and could have definitely impacted some of the, the homeowners further down or even the auditorium. Um, I get emotional. I don't want to. It was, you just wouldn't, we could have never guessed that that would have happened. It was just mind-boggling. And though going back now, the vegetation's growing back, we've had restoration projects, you know, but in that moment, it looked like a scar a scar on the earth. It, it just felt, we were gutted. You know, this is beautiful little tranquil, delicate place that was just like, I mean, we had to get huge land movers, gigantic construction, you know, backhoes and, you know, dump trucks to get in there and move that stuff out. Once they were able to safely get to trails, OSMP teams started to go in and assess the damage and make repairs. You learn how to read trails, you know, through experience and what water's doing, what, what's happening with the trails. And it's like learning a new language, right? And as soon as you start to crack it a little bit, you get to see what does water do on these trails. And even in 2015 and still to this day, there's times where I'm out on the system and my mind is completely blown with what I see the flood had done, you know, the signature of the flood is so prevalent on our system still, you know, as trail professionals, we just see it a little differently because we can like read into those details a little bit more. And it's just absolutely shocking what happened. Bridges blew out, trail roads were significantly at risk. And that was where we saw some of the biggest rutting. And then our legacy trails, which were trails that were never like fully designed to sustainable standards. Those were higher risk. We'll talk more about those sustainable standards for trails in the next episode, but essentially they try to divert water away from the trail using natural features like rocks. Okay, I want to come back to all the stories from people who lived through the flood, back to the human impact, the ways 
families and friends across Boulder County were shook by losses. Let's go back to the night everything started to escalate. My husband heard when we heard the, the gulch run. This is Tara Schettinger. She was the mayor of Jamestown at the time. It sounds like a freight train. We'd heard it before. So he ran out saying, there goes a the gulch. He came back about 30 seconds later saying, Joey's house collapsed, called 911. So I called 911 and ordered up every resource I could think of to order up around Boulder Emergency Services, left hand, paramedics, road crews, lights. They tried three different times to come up and recover Joe. First time realized that they needed bigger equipment. Second time got called off because of weather. And then the third time, um, they, they recovered him and we had asked to spend a little bit of time with him, which they let us do. So we had a small little memorial for him here. Joey was one of several we lost during the flood. In honor of those lives lost, let's take a moment to remember them. As you've been hearing, our community experienced a lot of damage and loss, but We also saw neighbors helping neighbors, incredible moments of kindness that really showcase how resilient we are and hopefully continue to be. It's so important to come together and remember and honor those examples of community care and continue to learn from them as we prepare for the future because we're going to see more extreme events. And so how do we hold on to community care? How do we continue to know each other and build relationships that help us withstand and really stand resilient in the face of whatever comes our way? There's a lot of community heroes out there that day. There's in every disaster. Katie Hanzarek was one of those community heroes. At the time, she worked at the Fraser Meadows Retirement Community. It was just exhausting. You know, at the end of the day, I was just just wiped out and would go home and cry, mm. you know, and just try to take care of myself in any way that I could. I, re- I just slept. I just slept and worked. That was it. Just try to provide, you know, comfort and care for everybody. Even before the, the last raindrop fell in Boulder County, Our phones were ringing off the hook. We had this huge volume of water and then a huge volume of people in in support of folks wanting to help. Neighbors, community members, individuals, businesses. The volume was just astounding. And before um, the end of the year, over 700 volunteers helped on 40 projects. And then within five years, over 1,400 volunteers gave over 8,000 hours on over 120 projects. You know, the only way we got back into our home as quickly as we did was because people read about us, people knew somehow about us. I'm not quite sure how, you know, maybe it was a newspaper article. Mm -hmm. The people who helped us were our neighbors and people we didn't even know and our friends and our Mm -hmm. family. It was just monumental because for a month at least, maybe longer, there were volunteers chomping at the bit trying to get to us and help us and we were an island, they couldn't get in. 
the last two weeks of moving stuff, that's when the volunteers came in and everything went lickety-split. We had already gotten half of it done, but that was working 20, you know, pretty much 24-7. I didn't know any of these people in this neighborhood, but this actually brought us all together, and now I know who everybody is. Oh, and then the people that, that were responsible for cleaning up the mess you know, on the streets, they are uh, unbelievable. And then the neighbors, they're always asking each other, you know, do you need anything? Do you need any help? You got plenty of food, water, stuff like that. So just it just kind of pulled this whole neighborhood together. And, you know, that's what was so cool about it. We saw so much of that, of neighbors helping neighbors. That community resilience, that community support for each other is something that we realized was really critical to our community's resilience and something that we focused on fostering after the flood. And it launched the city's volunteerism program in an organized and kind of amped up way and helped to shape how we did kind of community trainings and education after the flood. There were so many of those moments that we happened to be a part of. And I, I will forever be indebted and it's forever changed how I think about people and how I think about, um, you know, when people need something, you should help them out. And it doesn't mean that you need to give them money. It means you can make them sandwiches or you can spend a couple hours on a weekend one time just fixing something in their house. But it matters. You can hear these stories and other oral histories around the flood on the Carnegie Library's website. There are over 30 interviews with folks from immediately after the flood telling their stories and stories of how much help they got and how much they helped others. In the next episode, We'll dive deeper into the city's recovery and the work that we've done and will continue to do to prepare for future disasters. We're going to talk about what worked the way it was supposed to in 2013, lessons learned, and how we're working to prevent a flood catastrophe from happening again. This episode of Let's Talk Boulder was produced and edited by me, Leah Kelleher, with the help of me, Kate Stanek, and our City of Boulder colleagues. A special thanks to all the folks featured in this episode, Janelle Freeston, Joe Tadiucci, Chad Brotherton, Brandon Coleman, Chris Meschuk, and Mike Chard. And also a big thank you to all the folks who shared their stories with the Carnegie Library. Check out our show notes for flood preparedness resources, a link to our 2013 flood story map, music attributes, and much, much more. You can also share your reflections with us. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your stories of your community. Go onto our story map and share your reflections through art, poetry. What else, Leah? We're also collecting audio recordings. So you can record a little snippet of yourself talking about um, how you experienced the flood, your reflections. If you want to record a poem, that's great too. And maybe it'll be featured in an upcoming episode or somewhere else on our city channels. And these will all be added to our gallery on the story map where you can go and see your community members and your friends and, and folks all around the county in the front range share their experiences and their reflections with you through their own words. 